welcome to the eighth episode of the official SBGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Welcome, everybody. It's good to be back with you. And it's also good to be back with you with Dr. Elena Tselnat. That's C-E-R-N-A-T. And because she comes from a part of the world where C is pronounced not as ch, not as s, but as ts, we're going to get it right. Tsernat. Dr. Elena Tsernat, born in Romania, educated there, and then <laughs> then her odyssey began. Um, looking at her CV, she's been in Spain for quite some while, in Egypt, at the University of Chicago, at King's College Hospital in London, and uh, now in Leeds, also in England. Elena, <laughs> lovely to have you here. What are we going to talk about today? Thank you very much for the kind introduction, Alex. So it's a pleasure to do this podcast with you, and we'll talk about this year's annual meeting that was such a great event, really. It was a great event. How long has it been since Espigan has been able to hold an annual meeting? Last year's was cancelled, right? Yes, it was three years. So this was the first face-to-face -face meeting after three years uh, since the pandemic started and was really overwhelming with more than 3,000 delegates uh, on no, site. No, 3,000? Yes, and 1,000 online. Yeah. I think everyone was really missing this networking, the personal contact, which is such an important part of the Espagan. 3,000 plus one, that's 4,000 people interested in pediatric gastroenterology and hepatology, enough to go to an annual meeting? And then there's, then there's me, who, who didn't attend. But you were there, you were there, and together with some advisors of yours, people who want to stay in the background, I don't understand their reasons, but there it is. Um, you've picked out six abstracts, six reports of work that were presented there and that you think are particularly noteworthy. Um, well, it's up to you to start with whichever one you'd like. Let's, can you give us the name of the first author and the title of the first abstract? Oh my gosh, I'm watching her, and she is panicking. I'm going to have to step forward here, it looks as if. Let me find, let me find one for you. How about Sahin et al. from Turkey and the effect of high-dose zinc supplementation on improving feeding tolerance in very low birth weight infants, a randomized controlled trial. I particularly liked this one because I understood it and because it seemed to, well, it seems to make very good sense and to offer a useful recommendation for therapy. Why don't you take us through it and tell us what you derived from that abstract? So exactly, it was a very interesting abstract. And as my field of interest in is nutrition, I really found it very helpful. So um, what they, uh, as, as you said, it was a prospective randomized control trial involving almost 200 preterm neonates. And the primary outcome of this trial was the feed tolerance, but they also look at other things like mortality, necrotizing enterocolitis, sepsis, and some other complications related with prematurity. 
In the zinc group, they offer the patients four times more zinc than in the control group, so 12 mg a day compared with 3 mg a day. And they found a significant statistical difference in terms of feeding intolerance and neck in the control group, although no difference was found in mortality, hospitalization, or other complications like retinopathy, for example. They also found very good results in terms of preventing late-onset sepsis, mainly produced by gram-negative bacteria. So it seems that uh, the high-dose zinc is really beneficial for this patient, but there are still many questions to answer, like the exact dosing or the optimal duration of the supplementation. So I think it was a really interesting study and definitely a starting point in this area. I've got that. Effectively, you've got how many patients was that in the study? Uh, it was 195 in total. So 100 so in one group, they, 100 in the other. Okay. No, no, no. So they randomized it, the 195. So they 97 in a group and 98 in another. So. Uh, you know, I, was, I, I always work with percentages from 100, and it's so much easier just to round up by a couple of patients. All right. So effectively, um, what was it? <clears throat> a, hundred, uh, a percentage of 97, 98, and they found out that confirmed sepsis was far lower, statistically significantly lower, in the group that received extra zinc, yes. that necrotizing enterocolitis was, again, significantly lower in those who, uh, let me see if I got that right, yes, necrotizing enterocolitis incidence was substantially lower among those who received the extra zinc, and that feeding intolerance also was improved among those who received the extra zinc. Exactly. But, but it didn't make a difference in terms of length of hospitalization or eventual outcome in terms of mortality. Help me get my head around that. Yeah, it's a little bit uh, difficult to understand that because you'll think that if uh, they didn't have neck, they had a shorter hospitalization time, let's say, and probably the mortality in neck is a little bit higher. But yes, interestingly, they haven't found this difference. Um, so anyway, statistical significant to be mentioned, let's say. Okay. So the first thing to do is to duplicate the results. And I bet, well, are you trying to duplicate them at your institution in Leeds? So I'm not really doing neonatology. So the study was done by a neonatologist in a neonatal ah, unit. Ah. But I could definitely discuss with my colleagues from the neonatology department and see if they will be interested because I think it's, it's a very interesting study. And I think if we really show that uh, this is the way to go and offer more zinc to these preterm infants it will be really helpful for the future. Tell me about zinc toxicity. When do you when do you get too much zinc? It uh, depends. Sometimes it's difficult to get zinc toxicity, but uh, sometimes we uh, we get it uh, depending. For example, I'm uh, taking care of patients that have parental nutrition, so it will depend a little bit if we give too much in the PN, or sometimes if they have uh, renal problems also because they can't eliminate uh -huh, it. So yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. Effectively, this is a, a therapeutic intervention without a downside. Seems so, but as I said, the numbers were small, let's say, and I think we really need more studies to make that conclusion that it's no downside at all. Listen they haven't to you. checked. 
Listen to more studies, more funding. I I know what you're all about. Okay. Uh, Well, write those grants and get that study going is all I can say. Yeah. Let's move to the next. And since uh, since it's my choice, I'm going to go with a hepatology paper. And that would be from Goldschmidt et al. Um, All is not better without steroids. Clinical results from the Chill S Free I guess that would be children free, uh, children steroid free cohort study. What was the point and what was found in this investigative work? I think was a really interesting study and I think will really have a huge impact in the clinical practice. So this is the multi-center European prospective observational study in children that underwent liver transplant, looking at the outcomes over a year period. They included 247 children and the survival rate was extremely good, 98%, with 13 retransplantation. They had 124 episodes of rejection in 82 patients, so around 33% of the patient had at least one episode of rejection. And what the study looked at was that the immunosuppression protocols in the center, so the majority of them, so five out of seven, they are using tacrolimus monotherapy with basiliximab at day zero and four, and this accounted for around 54% of the cases. One center used tacrolimus and steroids that were 28% of the cases, and another one tacrolimus and MMF that was added later, So, and some who used cyclosporin also. And I think the results were very impressive, showing that the patients treated with tacrolimus alone experienced much higher rejection rates than the ones that were treated with tacrolimus and steroids, so the difference was 45% compared with 15%, so you can see a big difference here. Anyway, if you look at the study the other way around, 65% of the patients treated without steroids, they still remain steroids-free over 12 months, so without rejection. Anyway, I think this study is ongoing from what I could understand and will be interesting to see long-term results. But if this is confirmed, probably some centers may need to adapt their immunosuppression protocol. So yeah, I think it was a very interesting one. Is it clear to you how an episode of rejection was defined? I don't see any mention of biopsy confirmation of a clinical impression that rejection was a problem. No, it's not very clear from the abstract and for the presentation the truth is. So I know you are a liver histopathologist, so probably you'll know a lot about it. I, I find it... Well, the number of instances of, say, hepatic steatosis as diagnosed on the basis of uh, an imaging study impression that turned out to have no fat at all in the biopsy specimen is, I just do wonder how they said this child is rejecting. Maybe it's it's self-evident. Maybe it's obvious. Of course we did a biopsy. How else could we define rejection in a scientific trial? But you just never know. They do mention the importance of protocol biopsies in the abstract and the need to make sure that a patient who seems clinically okay is not smoldering along with a subclinical rejection that eventually will cost her or him his liver. But Um, I would have liked to know how rejection was defined 
in this set of cohorts. What is the, what is the reason to experiment with uh, steroid-free post-transplant immunosuppression? What do steroids do that is so darn bad? I'm not doing hepatology for a while now, but I did a lot during my training at King's and I know there they definitely use uh, steroids. And I was also, but I was talking with my husband who is a pediatric nephrologist and he sees a lot of uh, kids with uh, transplanted kidneys. And he was telling me about these protocols that they have. And there is a protocol where they don't use steroids either in kidney transplant and they do well, but they always use MMF or as a type, independent of the protocol. So as I said, I think um, sometimes there are centers, uh, some protocols that they don't really use the steroids, but I think we really need more data to see if we really, if we can't use it. And uh... that's another, um, what I'm going to have to characterize as a blank spot on the map in this abstract is that for persons who aren't, who like you are not au fait with uh, current liver transplant management, what are the reasons not to use steroids? What are we trying to get away from in terms of complications or other problems? And I'm not really sure about this. So if you had the management of a, a post-transplant liver patient, Elena, what would you give? Steroid-free immunosuppression or... Um, what, what, you have a number of choices with tacrolimus, with tacrolimus and steroids, with tacrolimus and uh, MMF. Which way should we be jumping? As I said, I'm not a hepatologist, but uh, seeing the results of these studies, probably I will go with the steroids. <laughs> you would go with the steroids, okay. Yeah, tacrolimus and steroids anyway. Okay, and that does, all is not better without steroids. And I guess that's the take-home message of the abstract title. Well, let's see what we can do with our third abstract to be considered. We're going to shift viscera now. Letter et al., writing from Israel, and one-third of children undergoing colectomy due to ulcerative colitis resume immunosuppressives or biologics post-surgery higher than in adults, a nationwide study from the EPI-IIRN. Righty-ho, the EPI-IIRN cohort, what is that? So, uh, this study was really impressive because um, it involved many, many patients. So, the EPI-IRN trial was, a base, was based in such a large population registry with more than 26,000 patients with IBD included. Um, I know the abstract said a little bit uh, less, but I think the study is ongoing. And when I assisted the talk, they were saying about 26,000 patients. Good God. Yes. <laughs> uh, from these ones, uh, 2,400 were pediatric patients. So um, more than 600 patients uh, from the total of them underwent colectomy, including 93 during the pediatric age. And what you said, what it was very interesting in this uh, group of patients was that uh, a third from the pediatric ones resumed immunosuppression medication within five years after colectomy compared to only 13% in adults. So 
33%, 13%, a big difference there. And strikingly also, whereas the most important reason in adults to resume the medication was the pouchitis, in children the most common reason was a later diagnosis of Crohn's disease or de novo Crohn's disease, and this doubled the adult percentage. So, as you know, now we are, when we do an operation on a child with QC, like a colectum, you usually, usually say it's a curative procedure. And in fact, it's how we many times present it to the families and children. So I think based on this data, we probably need to adapt our counseling and adjust the patient expectation before a colectomy for UC. Uh, in fact, in my hospital, I already discussed with my colleague surgeons about the study results, and we said probably we have to start um, mentioning this to the patients that uh, they will maybe in the future need medication again. Two things that occur to me in considering the study population the first is, of course, that if a child develops an inflammatory bowel disorder, that might just mean that he or she has a predisposition to gut problems that is greater than that of a comparison adult. I mean, why did it start earlier? because the threshold for developing clinical disease was, for whatever reason, lower in this group. That is, I'm not really surprised that a therapeutic intervention in somebody with a low threshold for inflammatory bowel disease is not so successful as the same therapeutic intervention in somebody who has a higher threshold for developing inflammatory bowel disease. Is that a reasonable um, inference to draw from the work that was presented here? What do you think? Yeah, I definitely think so. And in fact, if you look at the abstract, they said that the patient that needed medication, they were younger at diagnosis, and there was a shorter interval between the diagnosis and the colectomy. So probably it's a, it's a reason, definitely. And sometimes also when we do a diagnosis of uh, IBD in a young child, it's not so clear if it's ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, and many of the patients are diagnosed with IBDU that it's mm -hmm, something in between mm -hmm. and sometimes can progress uh, one way or the other. So definitely what you're saying, it uh, makes complete sense, yes. I now need to turn a little bit to the idea that the study was conducted in Israel. We know that in Ashkenazi Jews in particular, some disorders crop up more frequently than in other populations. I think that, well, that's what I remember learning in medical school in any event, and I don't think that that's changed. You'll remember as well that Crohn's disease was originally described from Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Mount Sinai Hospital was built so that Jewish doctors could have some place to take their patients because Jewish doctors weren't allowed to admit patients to the hospitals run by the Protestants or by the Catholics. It just it was a fact of life a hundred years ago in New York City. And it was among the yeshiva boys 
As a pathologist working at Mount Sinai once said to me, that Crohn's disease was identified and defined. Are we looking at a selected population, a somewhat different population, in drawing the study participants from persons who live in Israel? What do you think? It's a very interesting question. I don't think in the study they definitely haven't done a differentiation, for example, in the patients that were diagnosed with very early onset IBD. And these patients sometimes, so they they present very early in life and sometimes they have monogenic diseases. So it's mm-hmm. not a proper uh, like uh, multifactorial um, a disease like in adults or older kids. So they have a proper uh, genetic defect that will explain the phenotype of, uh, of IBD. So... Um, it's difficult to say if we can uh, if we can't apply this conclusion to other populations, but uh, I still think it's uh, it's a very interesting study, and probably we have to replicate it somewhere else, maybe in UK or in other in other countries, to see if we will have. Uh, uh, the same results, although I think it will be very difficult sometimes to put together all these numbers of patients because uh, the databases are not so so good, I'm imagining, like uh, to put together all the population of the country because in their study, all the population is registered to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, as you say that, I've been casting about for possible countries where registries like that exist and Hello, Scandinavia. I bet that you're the people who need to carry out a follow-up study to see if this can be duplicated and to see if incidences differ, say, between Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, and Finland. Because, again, the the Finns are a people unto themselves. Um, Well, in many, many ways, the Finns are wonderful people, but they certainly are a people unto themselves. And with that, I think it's time to move to the next abstract. How about the biliary atresia work, again from Israel? Weisburt Zinman is the first author, and human cholangiocyte organoids as biliary atresia injury and repair model is the title. What does this have to teach us? So that for me was a very interesting study. I'm not a basic scientist, but I was really impressed with this research and with what they can do in their labs, really. So it seems that they use, for some years now, an isoflavonoid toxin named biliatrison to induce cholangiocyte injury in mice and zebrafish models. But of course, a human model is different from an animal model. So currently, they started to use the same toxin, the biliatrison, to produce lumen obstruction in normal human organoids. Interestingly, they observed that extrahepatic organoids were more, more, were much more susceptible to this injury compared with the intrahepatic one. But what was really impressive for me was the fact that adding an acetylcysteine prevented the biliatrison injury, and if the damage was already there, the effect of the toxin was reversible with NAC. They also looked at the biliaretresia derived organoids, and they found that had the, they had a deformed uh, shape and poor proliferation capability compared with the normal organoids. And the shape and this uh, propagation improved after they added NAC. So I think, of course, it, uh, 
the basic science study, we have to see how this finding can be applied to the clinical practice. But in my opinion, the future looks really promising. So yeah, very, very interesting uh, topic, I think. Agreeing with you entirely that it's an interesting topic. And again, coming at this from the histopathologic perspective, I am not at all surprised to find that there are differences in susceptibility to biliatresion-induced injury between extrahepatic cholangiocytes and intrahepatic cholangiocytes. I mean, for heaven's sakes, they do different jobs. And not only do they do different jobs, they look different under the microscope. A cholangiocyte is not a cholangiocyte. A cholangiocyte is a peripheral small duct cholangiocyte or a mucinous or a mucin-secreting um, large duct cholangiocyte. And frankly, I'd like to know where in the heck they got their biliary epithelium from in the biliary atresia patients. Uh, when I look at a portahepatous remnant, there's just not a lot of epithelium there. Are they taking this epithelium from which they make their organoids, say from the gallbladder remnant, there's a lot more biliary epithelium in there, but it's again a different epithelium from that in the large ducts. That's not addressed in this abstract, but it sure is a question that I'd have liked to ask if I'd been in the audience there. Biliary attrition, extra and intrahepatic bile ducts, they don't mention the gallbladder, but Jeez, oh man, <laughs> I, I just have to ask, where did they get that from? They also mention um, attempting to obtain or actually obtaining cholangiocytes from persons with biliary disease but without biliary atresia. Or did I misread that? Um, I think it was more from the biliary atresia uh, people from I have... what I could understand. What I'm saying, biliary atresia patients, extra and intrahepatic bile ducts, as well as non-BA controls. Non-BA controls. So then non-BA controls are all patients without biliary tract disease? It's what I could understand. I think they were the organoids that uh, were normal and they did the, they wanted to see how the biliatrizone, it's, uh, it's affecting this uh, organoid. So yes, I think from uh, normal, not biliatrizia uh, or no biliary uh, defects there. So I think that were the normal ones, the controls. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I'd, I'd love to see a second control group that from, say, maybe... Uh, autoimmune sclerosing cholangitis or PSC patients from persons who have biliary tract disease that is not biliary atresia and to see how those organoids respond to various insults. But uh, yeah, that's, the sort interesting. Of, that's the sort of cavil, the sort of quibble that is usually reserved for the second reviewer on the manuscript, the second reviewer who is never satisfied, and I think I'd probably better drop it here. <laughs> Let's see. Well, how, we're, we're cracking right along. We're making good progress with these. I, I'm not really happy with the abstract presented by Ikoba et al. from Birmingham Women's and Children's Hospital, AST to platelet ratio index score, APRI, 
a useful non-invasive marker for assessing progression of intestinal failure-associated liver disease. Tell me why you picked this abstract as worth our time today. So, as you are very well aware, the liver biopsy is the gold standard, of course, for mm-hmm. to assess the liver fibrosis. But we know it's invasive, and it's not always giving you the true picture. If the disease is patchy, and sometimes it's how is uh, how we see it in intestinal failure associated liver stop disease. Stop here! Stop here! This is heresy. This is not to be countenanced. You're taking the bread out of your histopathologist's mouths with this. Okay, keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay, so what they've done in this study, they correlated the AST platelet index or the APRI score in 63 children who had a liver biopsy done at the time of the transplant assessment with samples from the explanted liver at the time of the proper transplant round four months later. They have seen an increase in the medium of the APRI score from 7.3 to 10.1 during this time, and this is from the presentation. And when they look at the ISHEX score to assess the fibrosis on biopsies, this went from 3 to 5, so again there was an increment also. They found also that this APRI score has a high sensitivity and high negative predictive values. So um, with these results, you can say that uh, the index could be a good screening tool to monitor the progression of intestinal failure-associated liver disease, that it's a feared complication at the end of the day of the uh, PN. Now, so, let's go to, now let's go to the table that they presented here. We have two items at the very bottom of the table. One of them is the APRI score, and the APRI score has a p-value of 0.039. The platelet count has a p-value of 0.001. Whoa! What have we added by mixing in the AST value as a proportion of the upper limit of normal in a particular laboratory. What has that given us that a platelet count doesn't give? I figure that as fibrosis in the liver advances, then hypersplenism progresses and the platelet count drops. And that's what we see, it seems to me, in the raw data that they present there. What is the, what is the added value, again, of the APRI score versus simply following the platelet count? Oh, I think we have to ask this, uh, the authors of the abstract, really. <laughs> <laughs> but I still think that um, it will be interesting to have a score to do, to like to, to decide the more, it's not so much replacing, let's say, the biopsy, because definitely will not do that. But I think uh, to give you a little bit the timing of the biopsy, to have an idea when to do it. For example, if you have a patient that has fibrosis, uh, you know already, but you can't do very often biopsies, but doing the score can help you to decide when to do the next biopsy when or when to send him for the transplant assessment. It's true that the platelets are giving you an answer also, but mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> but I think the score could be helpful also in these cases. Ah, uh, you're a kind-hearted person. <laughs> what can I tell you? I think that, but if if you're following the platelet count, uh, well, I'll I'll leave that 
to people who are more knowledgeable in hepatology than I am. I'm, I'm just a... I'm just a simple country pathologist who takes an interest in the liver, and I'm, I'm certainly not capable of assessing um, particular clinical scores and tools that are used for clinical management. Um, just over here in the corner scratching my head is all I can say. Well, now we have to turn to another abstract. That is, the outcome of induction therapy with vedolizumab in children results from the prospective multicenter VedoKids study. First author on this is Shavit uh, Brunschvig. I hope that I pronounced the name correctly. And it's a multicenter study, as these things tend to be. Um, should we be using vedolizumab in pediatric Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis? What did you take away from this abstract, Elena? So this study was really exciting because it's providing for the first time scientific validated data on more than 100 children with IBD treated with vedolizumab. And this study showed that vedolizumab works very well in ulcerative colitis patients with a fast response after six weeks, but with some late responders also at week 14. So the clinical remission rate at week 14 were above 50%. And taking into consideration that many of these patients were not biological naive, so they went through all the anti-TNF treatment, this uh, percentage of clinical remission, it's very impressive. However, as we already knew from um, other studies, in patients with Crohn's disease, the dolizumab was slightly less effective and the response was not as fast. A second very important point of this study was that we have to monitor drug levels. The levels above 25 micrograms per meal at six weeks and above seven micrograms per meal at week 14 were strongly correlated with the clinical response. So we really need to do levels to decide the dose of the medication in this kid. So a very interesting study and I think it's, uh, it's bringing many novelties in the vedolizumab treatment. It's great to have another arrow in your quiver, another tool in your kit. And I'm sure that this will make a great difference to a number of kids who otherwise haven't been adequately helped. Um, what's, the, what's your experience with loss of effectiveness of a drug like, of a drug like, uh, now let me, excuse me here, but with a drug like vedolizumab, um, in terms of developing antibodies that reduce the effectiveness of the drug by reducing the amount of working drug in circulation. I don't have so much experience with vedolizumab because it's a very new drug and in fact it's not even approving kids although we use it. Huh. So the, yes. So the drugs that are approving children in UK and in the majority of the countries are infliximab and adalimumab. And unfortunately, we see a lot of um, a loss of response, so developing antibodies with uh, low levels. And in this case, you are in a very difficult position, let's say. In adults, they have a much... Uh, bigger variety of medication that they can use. I'm talking about biologic compared with, with kids. So I think uh, having other ones like vedolizumab, ustekinumab, it's, it's very, very important. Um, every time that we have to prescribe it, we have to go to like a chairman action and do a lot of documentation and all this. But I think it's uh, very, very helpful. And I think we need these drugs for our patients. 
So we can expect a loss of response to this biological as well as to others, but simply the option of changing, of mixing and matching these agents can fend off disease, can ameliorate disease, at least for a little while longer. Yes, definitely. And this class, it's completely different from the anti-TNF medications that Vedolizumab is anti-integrin. So definitely um, the ones that uh, didn't respond to anti-TNF, they have better chances to respond to this one, at least in ulcerative colitis, as we have seen in the study. I'm looking at the adverse reactions here and uh, serious and non-serious adverse events. They seem like nothing at all. Uh, yes. Maybe maybe a few more instances of sneezles and weasels, upper respiratory infections. That's not a great deal to deal with, is it? No, I think uh, the biologic treatment are very safe. As I said, we don't have uh, so much information about vedolizumab in particular, but uh, what I could see or what I'm seeing with anti-TNF uh, uh, medication the the side effects are much less than you're thinking initially. So I think this is really reassuring. And uh, it's for us and also for the families and for the children. So I think this is really important. How does this experience, as reported in this trial, track the experience that people have had with vedolizumab in adults? I think it's a very it's similar as well. So they have seen that uh, it's working better in ulcerative colitis than in Crohn's disease, and it's where they use it more, and uh, they have good experience with it, definitely. Well, as I guess the bottom line is that it's always good to have something else to try when the first line, when the first line approaches just aren't doing the job, refractory disease, and here we have something else that can be useful. And that's always good news. Definitely, yeah. Well, now, uh, Elena, look at that. We've gotten through six of these abstracts. I know that you wanted to talk about the -the state-of-the-art lecture on the intestinal virome and its implications. for, But I just don't think we have time for that today. It's such a big topic. And in order to get through that, We'd have to, uh, well, we'd have to have another podcast, wouldn't we? Maybe we can, maybe, maybe with you, maybe with the person who actually presented that lecture, but that's all up to Selma and the Espigan people who commissioned these podcasts. I just show up and try to make sense of it. (laughs) How about your choices, your choices as you went through your training? You found yourself in Spain after Romania, and then you went up to England for attachments at Great Ormond Street and at King's College Hospital. And were you just tired of moving around everywhere in Europe? Did you decide to stay in Leeds as a result? I'm in England now. I might as well stick it out. Yes, yeah, so my idea, my initial thoughts were to come for six months, a year, and here I am, uh, seven years later, still in UK, in Leeds. Uh, but yes, I found uh, a very nice uh, city. Leeds, it's, uh, it's great and a very good team, so that made me stay also. And I really like what I'm doing about uh, intestinal failure. So, yeah. 
This is so, the reason for yeah. staying, yeah. <laughs> so that's a wonderful reason for staying. But it complicates things a little bit. I mean, SBGAN is meant to be an international organization. SBGAN takes people from all manner of situations and shares and lets people learn from experience outside their own country, outside their own institution. It's uh, cross-pollination is the chief, is one of the chief advantages of being an SBGAN member, taking part in its activities. However, as you know, at the end of these podcasts, we generally ask the person being interviewed for a song, a song from their country, their homeland. So what's it going to be? An English song, a Spanish song, a Romanian song? It will be a Romanian one, <laughs> yes. So, um, probably one of my favorites Romanian song. It's um, it's a very old one, and it's a representative for Romania. Uh, the name is Chokerlia or Skylark. That is the name of the bird that it's singing when flying. Chokerlia, so, Chokerlia. Remember, yeah. remember, you folks at home. That's C, Ch. Okay, Chokerlia. Chokerlia, huh? yes. Like, it's like Chernat, okay? <laughs> yes, <laughs> okay. exactly. And this song has been adapted by many composers and uh, interpreted by many, many singers. But the version that I like uh, most, it's the one interpreted by Gheorghe Zamfir, who is considered to be the master of the pan flute, or nai, as we call the instrument in Romanian. So, uh, yeah, it's a very nice song, and I think it's touching your soul. So, yeah, enjoy it. It's, it's very nice. <laughs> like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our SBGAN playlist. Thank you so much for that recommendation, and thank you for being with us today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, and oh, by the way, Alistair Baker sends his best regards. There was, he was so impressed with how you took that, that pediatric cardiac data from the allergial well, oh. that's, but uh, just, just a chance to pass along a compliment before we say goodbye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. <laughs> bye.